With me today is Wayne Pinello, president and founder of Risk Revenue Energy Associates and Andrew Furman, managing director for Risk Revenue Energy Associates. You have co-authored a book set to release today titled Risk is an Asset, Turning Commodity Price Uncertainty into a Strategic Advantage. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining me today. Well, thank you, Jessica. We're thrilled to be here. Thank you as well. Very good to have you. My first question, really, if we can just get started with, how can risk be an asset? Well, that's a, a wonderful question. And um, I'd like everyone to think about the simple fact that in the United States, 40 million Americans, I'm sorry, 40,000 Americans die each year in automobile crashes, yet almost every American drives. Well, why would we do that? Why would we all willfully engage in such a dangerous activity it's because it allows us to create value in our lives. It allows us to get to work so we can pay our bills. It allows us to take our children to school or to their soccer games. It allows us to take our spouses out on a date and, and, and reinforce the, the, uh, the wonderful things about being married together. So we take this risk knowing that it's there because it enhances our lives. So driving is an asset, even though it is a dangerous endeavor. Now the question is, how do you manage that? Well. When you get in your car, you turn the key, the engine starts, that's good. The uh, no red lights on the dashboard, that's good. You know, so the car is probably good to go. If there were red lights, it's probably something you'd want to check first. But with no red lights, you uh, pull out of the driveway. And let's remember, we all have car insurance, but that isn't what keeps us safe. What keeps us safe is what we're going to do from this point forward. When we get out on the highway, what is a safe speed to drive? Well, you know, if you're on the highway, 70 or 75 might be appropriate unless there's a lot of traffic. But if you're on a backcountry road, you'd never drive that fast. It would be quite dangerous. And if it's sunny versus a rainy day or night versus day, what we do is we use a process to take in the information around us to adjust our behavior so that we keep that dangerous, otherwise, other, otherwise dangerous endeavor driving. We keep that safe and keep ourselves and our families safe. So what, our, what we're advocating here is that, yeah, we all need to, to take some risk in life to advance our station and, and quality of life. And we need a process to manage that to make sure that we have a reasonable expectation that we'll be successful. And can I ask, really, is that why the book begins by defining maybe the differences between a gamble risk and then there's calculated risk? We know, how does that help set up uh, what you'll explain throughout the book? But really also, how is that relevant to today's environment really that everyone's trying to figure out how to navigate? So the, fir the first thing is um, <clears throat> everybody uses processes in their normal course of life, whether it be cooking in the kitchen or driving as we just described. But then there is the difference between a gamble where there's no way to manage the outcome or a managed risk where you control the parameters or <clears throat> an environment where you are using a process to manage the risk and now you're turning risk into an asset. Why did you write this book? Why did you both feel the need uh, to do this? Well, first thing I want to point out is we, the math can be complicated, but that's not this book. We wrote this book specifically targeting under undergraduate level business students so they would understand better how to manage risk. The, I founded this company more than 20 years ago when I first started advising CEOs and CFOs of production companies on how to manage the, the revenue stream from the production that they owned. And what inevitably happened is they focused on price rather than performance. 
And when people focus on price, they get emotionally involved. And that impairs their ability to be logical. So I set out upon developing a methodology that would allow people to see through the haze of emotion and focus on the reality of the opportunity in front of them and make better or at least strategic decisions that hopefully in the long run would, would, um, would prove to be a benefit. And in fact, the, the track record of our clients is simply astounding. They've done a tremendous job. You know, in the, in the last, since 2008, we've seen oil drop, uh, have three downturns of 70%. And, and our clients have, have uh, held up really well in each one of those downturns and been paid very handsomely for the hedges. You know, when we looked at our, all those books that are out there, uh, on on hedging, they're really really focused on derivatives. You know, for example, swaps or puts or calls, and you know how you get these structures to offset risk. Now, Wayne and I and our team, we're options experts. We can help solve any kind of complicated problem when it comes to that. We're you know we have our DNA from the trading floor, so we understand how those instruments work. But what we felt was missing was enterprise hedging. The fact that, you know, going back to Wayne's point, that, that businesses need to focus on performance. They need to focus on their enterprise as opposed to on how is a put going to work versus how a call is going to work. I mean, we advise, uh, we advise to that extent, but it's much more important to really focus on the success metrics. And we felt that that was lacking uh, out there in the literature. Uh, the other thing is this is that we when we spoke to industry executives, uh, one of which, for example, was working for a large international uh, exchange, you know, these are people who are trying to educate their customers all the time to use their futures products. And, and you know, they confirmed that, you know, enterprise hedging books are not out there. So we really think that this can make a difference for people. It really is good to hear, uh, you know, the more assets or tools, really, the better I know for people. So let's talk about how much risk is too much. Risk management, I imagine, of course, is unique to different situations. There's a lot to consider, including the overall business structure and its employees as well. Well, that Lee, that's a great question following Andy's, high, Andy's highlighting enterprise-wide risk assessments, because um, as Peter Drucker said, what, what gets uh, measured gets managed. And there's nothing more useless than managing something that doesn't need to be measured. And so you have to be very careful about what you measure. And, and so let's, let's just take, to keep it in really general terms, everybody saves for a rainy day, all right? Whether you have, you know, you're planning, you, you might have an unexpected expense or, or car breakdown, or, or maybe you um, will be injured and can't work for a few months. So you need, you need to know that if I didn't work for three months, I could pay my rent or my mortgage. Um, we, what we put into that account is dollars and we measure the account in dollars, but we should also measure that account in its utility. What does it do for me? You know, um, if, do I, I, you, know you might, uh, as a young person shortly out of college, say, okay, I, I've, I've got enough money in the bank that if I had a major car breakdown, um, I can cover that, but I only have two months of rent. Is that enough or not? Right? And they should be thinking about the utility of that account. So when we take an upstream company, and let's just keep it simple, um, let's say you have a producer that's going to produce a million barrels of oil this year, and oil is $40 a barrel. What they should be asking themselves is, 
how low can oil go? And if oil can get down to 20, they should, they should ask themselves, what do I look like if my revenue is only 20 million, not $40 million a year? If that CFO decides, well, if we fall below $30 million, I can't service my debt. I'm going to have to lay off people and I don't want that to happen. That means that they have $10 million more risk than they really can afford to have. So now, now when we're looking at this, we're looking at this as what, what is the bogey that I need to achieve so that I can weather any storm? And in that particular case, if we need to close the gap from 40 um, to 20, lift that up $10 million to 30, that, no, that means we have 50% more risk than that company can handle. And we need to develop strategies that would allow them to close that gap so they'd have a high level of confidence they could weather any storm. And I do have a few more questions for you outside of the book, but still really relating to today's risk and current events. The meltdown at sentiment, uh, if you will, uh, the settlement rather of the May WTI contract. Volume indicates that were actually very few trades at sub-zero that day, but the poster price followed those trades. Tell us why a speculator was still holding on to the paper oil for May delivery, you know, as late as that, is that naivete or what do you attribute that to? Uh, what happened, interestingly, was that when we went back and looked at the open interest, open interest was a lot higher for that May contract. This is back in April when we saw those negative numbers in WTI. And I, I think that, that just from a volume perspective, there just were, were greater amounts of people still holding positions that needed to get out of that contract. And, and so they ended up having to get out at negative prices because there just wasn't enough demand. I think that what we can do is we can look at, at the, the issue fundamentally and technically. Fundamentally, this was something that was taking place over about three months. You know, first actually going back even to December, uh, you had the Saudi Arabians doing their IPO and trying to hold oil prices up. And then in, um, in January, the, uh, the issues with Iran and, and Soleimani, uh, and then once that was resolved, now all of a sudden, uh, I, I think that it kind of put more of the onus on producers getting a little bit more, more active, uh, you know, in, in OPEC plus. And then on top of that, now we had COVID that started to strike. And by February and March, we started having some, you know, some demand questions, even in, in uh, you know, back in January, there were uh, there was less uh, air travel going on, and and as we all know, crude oil, you know, part of that that barrel that gets cracked gets cracked into jet fuel. So we were losing demand from jet fuel, and then in, by March and April, we were losing demand from from gasoline for automobiles because people weren't driving to work anymore because of shutdowns. So. From a fundamental perspective, demand is coming off. And then in March, on top of all of this, we actually had a price war with Russia and Saudi Arabia. And, and so all of these things are, are starting to flood the market with extra supply. And so storage ends up getting spoken for in the weeks prior to this contract melting down. So it wasn't like this thing happened overnight. There was a certain amount of warning that that this could actually happen. And then technically, to your point about these oil contracts that were there, uh, Jessica, uh, greater than normal open interest, people couldn't get out. And now all of a sudden they had to get out at any price because th th they can't hold the, uh, you know, the futures contract to delivery. My next question, United States Oil Funds LP's business model. Let's talk about that. It seems as if investors didn't understand the investment is in next month's barrels, maybe actually holding on to barrels until the price gets better. 
the paper barrels get sold on schedule each month, we know at whatever the market price is, does it concern you the volume of speculator paper floating around for WTI? Uh, Yes and no. It used to concern me more than it does now, and I'm going to explain to you why. It used to be that all of the volume, as you say, was concentrated in the front month, and everyone knew that they had to roll all of that volume uh, into the next month, into the second month. And so almost like they were like, for lack of a better word, sitting ducks. And uh, together with this, uh, you know, perfect storm that we had back in April, they, they were the they were the mullet, they were the target. And they actually had contracts that had to get rolled. And the CME, uh, who oversees the, uh, the NYMEX contract, they were, they were the ones who, who basically reset the rules for the USO, for the ETF. And what they did was they made them push back the contract duration so that instead of owning the contract in the first month, now they're owning it in the second month, 20%, in the third month, 20%, in the fourth month, 20%, and actually even as far out right now, uh, October, November, December, out to June of 2021. So because of the fact that those contracts are now spread out more, more broadly in the backs, it's a lot safer for everyone now. I'm not gonna say it's completely without risk that, that there could be problems with this ETF, but far, far safer now than it was before. Thank you for that, Andrew. Let's talk about uh, producers, if you can, explain to us how producers are continuing to, to collect $40 or whatever, you know, maybe per barrel right now on their hedged oil, even if they aren't producing it. Are those the luckiest producers of all, the ones that hedge? in this great day you know of oil supply is it luck or just good business practice to really be hedging is this unlike pre-shale days the answer is unique to each company i mean obviously in in a world where prices are lower and margins are tighter um, many companies need to hedge more than they would in a much higher price environment where they have larger profit margins but there are some producers who can choose not to produce because the price they're selling their physical molecules for is less than their cost of production. And so they have the opportunity to not spend $30 to pull a barrel of oil out of the ground that they're selling for $20. And yet they still have hedges at $50 that are paying them the difference between 50 and 20 bucks. So they're making the full 30 instead of only the gap between the hedge price and their production cost. Um, it's hard for producers to do that as a reality. One, because if they shut in a well, they don't know what's gonna happen when they turn it back on again. They're not always confident that's gonna come back as strong as it was. And then, and then there are some leases that are held by production, so they just have to produce it or, or they suffer other financial consequences. If I can ask a final question of you both, uh, with your experience in the industry, what do you see as the path forward from here for the oil and gas industry? You know, with, uh, you know, leaning on your book and the information that you have there, but then also just your knowledge of the industry as we move forward through these times. I, I think that you want to consider the life cycle of any, uh, of any industry and the oil industry is maturing. That is, in the early days of wildcatters, you could take a great deal of risk because if you found that well, it was gonna pay you very, very handsomely. And, and then as, it, uh, as more competition came in, you had to be a little bit smarter about it. And when I first started um, working on the physical side of, 
of, of with physical companies here in the business. You know, when people are drilling in the Gulf of Mexico as their primary source of new developments, you know, to, to have a 25% success rate through the drill was unbelievable. You, you were a superstar. Today, with infield oil drilling and with frack plays, you know, the expectation is if you're not hitting 90%, you're doing something terribly wrong. So we have gone from a, a wildcatting business to a manufacturing business. And you've probably heard that term in many other places. And with manufacturing, competition comes in and margins get tighter. And these companies are going to have to put themselves in a position where they have more consistent uh, control over their margins and their cash flow. In terms of business models, there's also going to have to be a change that's, that's afoot where we've got businesses that are, you know, proving up the acreage, like Wayne explained, they, uh, they use debt to do that. And it doesn't really matter if they're, if they're leveraged because, you know, this is an advantage to them to be able to use that risk to, uh, to basically uh, prove up that asset. Problem now is, this is that with prices going down, uh, their economics are underwater and they have too much debt. And so the business model is going to be changing to one where they have to be cash flow positive. An elegant way to describe this is that going forward, companies are going to have to manage themselves for resiliency rather than trying to maximize the opportunity. They, they, need, to, they, they need to set themselves up so that they can weather any storm and know they'll still be in business at the end of the year. Because directly to Andy's point, the it used to be that the asset was what was in the ground. Now the asset is your ability to get it out of the ground. And that means you need people and technology. And so if you're not protecting your culture, your core team of employees that, that enabled you to develop, find, and, and exploit this asset, then, then you really are rolling the dice with your most important asset. I thank you gentlemen both for joining me today and we are pleased to be able to get to discuss this with you. I know I can speak for myself and hard energy uh, to be able to get to discuss your book, but also your expertise in the industry. We wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you for this time. It's a pleasure to work with you.